It's Thursday, July 25th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Mueller Day came and went, and it wasn't the big spectacle that Democrats had hoped for and President Trump had feared. In back-to-back sessions, special counsel Robert Mueller declined to answer questions, appeared confused with certain lines of questioning, and really didn't seem to move the needle of public opinion. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters, joins us for how the Mueller testimony went. Next, the small city of Emeryville, California, has the nation's highest minimum wage at $16.30 and is ground zero for a national debate over how to balance raising the wages of the lowest paid workers, but also making sure that small businesses can keep up, especially restaurants which have been hit the hardest as they struggle to avoid raising menu prices. Jim Carlton, reporter for The Wall Street Journal, joins us for this minimum wage fight. Finally, the nation's biggest on-demand food delivery app, DoorDash, is dropping their current tipping policy, which came under scrutiny when customers realized that their tips were being used to meet a minimum payment for a driver rather than what a tip should be, adding to the driver's income. We spoke to Kia Kokolicheva, tech reporter for Axios, for how the old policy worked, and then I share with you how the CEO of DoorDash has reacted. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. A sitting president cannot be uh, indicted. So the report did not conclude that he did not commit obstruction of justice. Is that correct? That is correct. And what about total exoneration? Did you actually totally exonerate the president? No. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. Thanks for joining us, Ginger. Thanks for having me. We're going to be doing a little bit of analysis of Robert Mueller's testimony. He did back-to-back sessions with the House Judiciary and Intelligence Committees. They were broken up. So the House Judiciary Committee focused on obstruction of justice and the Intelligence Committee focused on the Russian interference into the election and whether there was collusion or not. Let's start off with the first hearing, which was the obstruction of justice focus. Tell us any of the top takeaways you thought occurred during that session. So the big moment during the morning session with Robert Mueller was when he was asked, had the president not been the president, would he have indicted of obstruction of justice? And Mueller appeared to be saying yes, that he would have. He later sort of walked that back, saying he didn't understand, he wasn't clear on the question, that he was not saying he would indict the president under the specific details, but that had in a hypothetical situation, he would be capable of indicting a president after they left office. Yeah, and that all centered around the uh, Office of Legal Counsel, who basically said you cannot indict a sitting president. Gerald Nadler got him to say that, once again, he did not exonerate the president. But other than that, not really much came out of that. It was very much sticking to the book, sticking to what was in the report. There was many times that Mueller declined to answer things, or he, he even refused, which I thought was very interesting, to read passages from the report. Instead, he would defer back to you know the Democrats or the Republicans asking the question and say, well, why don't you read it? Very conscious of not wanting that soundbite of his voice to be out there. That's right. This was not the blockbuster hearing that Democrats had hoped for. Uh, There were no big moments. And Robert Mueller was very brief, compounded by the problem that the lawmakers didn't appear uh, ready to turn the microphone over to Robert Mueller for most of it. They were each given five minutes, and many of them spent the five minutes appearing to try to create their own soundbite instead of getting one from Mueller. One of the interesting exchanges also that happened from the first hearing was that with Representative Val Demings, where 
she asked if he would agree that the Trump administration and the questions that they submitted, if they weren't thorough enough and if that impeded the investigation, uh, Mueller, again, really not giving a clear answer, just, yeah, I generally agree with that. I mean, there was so much of that kind of answering. There was a little more detail as well from Robert Mueller about the process of asking the president for an interview that he spent over a year inquiring, uh, trying to get an interview with the president that he wasn't able uh, to follow up based on the written question. And there was an exchange there for a moment where someone said, well, is it possible that you just gave up on this uh, because you already had all the evidence you needed to prove that there was the intent to commit obstruction of justice in Mueller? You could see trying not to answer the question, but he said it would have taken a long time and it would have been bogged down in the courts and they knew that and uh, and didn't think it was going to bring much more information to the table. Yeah, everybody was pulling passages from the report and they would lead Robert Mueller into yes and no questions about, you know, is this true? Did Trump do this? Things like that. And Mueller would follow along with it. And at the very end, he would say, I'm following through with you on this. And that's all accurate. But I don't agree with the way you're you're painting the picture. And there was just so much of that. Let's talk quickly about the second session before the House Intelligence Committee. They were focused on the Russian interference into the 2016 election. Any big moments from there? This was really the part in which Mueller felt more comfortable saying conclusions and what had happened. He has been quite clear uh, that he believes the Russians did interfere in the 2016 election, that they were actively involved in trying to influence the outcome. There was one moment in which he said, you know, He's worked in law enforcement and investigations, and this was sort of the most clear and egregious example of a foreign government trying to interfere in American democracy. When it came to the president, again, we did not see him giving anything up or being willing to say something that was beyond uh, what we already saw in the report. Uh, He did say early on that collusion is not a legal term and that there was no way for them to investigate collusion because it wasn't actually a crime or a thing that could could be investigated. Uh, by a prosecutor. So uh, the big two things that Trump likes to say, no collusion, no obstruction. At different points today, we saw Mueller saying that 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 was not quite the case since one, he did not exonerate him and two, uh, he didn't even investigate so-called collusion. Let's talk about Mueller's overall performance. I didn't really think he did very well. His very short answers. He uh, seemed kind of confused with where the line of questioning was going sometimes. He asked for many things to be repeated. It was tough to watch. Uh, It was at times a little tough to watch. He sort of mumbled. Um, He seemed confused about who was asking him questions. But I do think he would think he did a good job. He didn't speak outside the bounds of the report. He didn't say anything he hasn't already said in writing. That was kind of his goal going in was just to explain that. But it was not the performance that many people were hoping for, which was a way to sort of crystallize and make clear to a person who hasn't read the whole report what's in it. Instead, there was a lot of referring to paragraphs and page numbers and basically telling the American people to read it on their own. Yeah. It was kind of messy sometimes. The president, you know, uh, tweeted truth is a force of nature. They're claiming a victory on this. The last thing I want to ask, Ginger, we at the beginning of the week when we spoke about this, we were going off of that question that Chris Wallace asked, is this going to be a dud? 
What do you think? I'm not sure yet. I think it's still too early to tell. There were some moments where the sort of meat of what is in this report became a little clearer. Things that we already knew, but they're going to be on video clips, which we didn't have before from a speaker who uh, still really held on his credibility. And so I think it takes a few days before we know how that's going to register with the American public. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Everybody uh, was in agreement that uh, the uh, then uh, state minimum of $9 an hour was too low. But uh, the the issue now is the speed at which it's gone up, uh, and especially uh, how it uh, affects the uh, small restaurant uh, industry. Joining us now is Jim Carlton, reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Jim. Uh, It's good to be here. We're going to be talking about the minimum wage. Uh, For a long time, there was this fight, you know, the fight for 15 Everybody wanted the minimum wage to be increased to $15. I mean, this was a fight going on all across the country, and many cities and states started implementing this. But the story we're going to talk about right now is the highest minimum wage in the country, which is at $16.30. It's in a small city called Emeryville in California. And it's really at the center of the discussion of how raising the minimum wage impacts small business owners, how it impacts the workers themselves also. Tell us what's going on in Emeryville. At the beginning of this debate in Emeryville, which began really in 2015, um, you know, everybody uh, was in agreement that uh, the uh, then uh, state minimum of $9 an hour was too low. But uh, the the issue now is the speed at which it's gone up, uh, and especially uh, how it uh, affects the uh, small restaurant uh, industry. Uh, so it went from $9 to $12.25 the first year, um, then it went to 13 then it went to 14 and then last year to 15 And at this point in time, um, the restaurants were having trouble, especially common uh, uh, kind of mom and pop restaurants were having trouble um, keeping up. Yeah, I think one of the quotes in your story, we may have the highest minimum wage, but I don't think people in Emeryville will feel like paying the highest prices in the country. Tell us where Emeryville is. Uh, I noticed in your story, it's the hometown of Pixar Animation Studios. So rents are very high there. Median home prices are very high also. So this is kind of all rolled into the discussion. People that live there, the workers that live there at the restaurants, they need more money just to live in the city. You just think of Emeryville as kind of a microcosm of the California you know, cost of living debate. Um, we have restaurant workers making minimum wage in a town where the uh, average rent for a one-bedroom apartment goes for about $3,000 a month. So I think they were well-intentioned in Emeryville. But here's the problem. Emeryville is at $16.30 an hour. You go to Oakland, Oakland's like at 13 or Berkeley is 12 13 um, So Emeryville is like this island. They, they have um, gone, they, they've shot up the minimum wage, but, um, you know, you can go get your uh, uh, eggs and bacon in Oakland, maybe for cheaper. Um, and so I think what the, the concern is that these restaurants are going to either price themselves out or they can't afford to uh, pay this uh, uh, increase. And so what they're also doing is cutting hours and even cutting jobs. And that's um, another part of the national discussion. One of the restaurants you spoke to, they had to lay off six of their 10 workers. That's, I mean, more than uh, your work, more than half of your work staff. That's going to impact productivity and, and, you know, it can really impact the restaurant in a lot of different ways. And this is part of the discussion, you know, raising the minimum wage obviously is a good thing for the workers, but 
uh, a lot of times that comes with job loss. And on the federal level, there was a CBO report that projected that a $15 minimum wage, federal minimum wage, would boost the pay of 17 million workers, which is great. But at the same time, uh, you'd probably lose about 1.3 million jobs. And that's that balance that it's tough to navigate. What's been the reaction to your article so far from uh, readers and from other restaurants as well? Well, you know, it seems to be, uh, Oscar, very religious. Is this a very religious issue? And I know in Emeryville, and this is what I'm getting in my uh, you know, feedback from the story, is that people are lined up in their positions. You know, organized labor is very, and, uh, you know, and they, they've been, I think that they come from the side that, you know, minimum wage has been too long for what, too long. The, the federal minimum wage is only seven twenty-five an hour, and it's been that way since, you know, for over 10 years. That's a long time. Um, uh, but then you've got the business community, the small business community, that's they're, they're seeing these kind of casualties. Um, and and I talked to a city councilman named uh, John Bowders, uh, who very uh, he's uh, uh, like like his colleagues there, very liberal uh, Democrat, uh, uh, believes in worker rights. But he's the one that was listening to the uh, the restaurants and saying, "Hey, we need to uh, put in a pause." So he actually um, proposed and they passed uh, an amendment to give the small restaurants a breather for a few for about a year uh, from the the, the latest increase. Um, that provoked an uproar in Emeryville, and the organized labor came down on him um, really hard. And so last you know. Uh, just this week, uh, the city council decided to, you know, take away that uh, uh, that temporary holding pattern for the restaurants, and now they have to pay it. But it's um, it just shows you how religious this is. Yeah, and it's just an interesting story. It almost serves as a case study for the larger conversation, which is going to keep going. There's already other states and cities, as I said, that are increasing the minimum wage, and the, there's an effort to do this federally also. So the conversation is going to continue on that. Jim Carlton, reporter for the Wall Street Journal, thank you very much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. In their head, they're thinking, great, this is paying for the delivery costs. And then when they want to come and give a tip, in their mind, this is additional money. Right. And they're not really clear on what the actual math is to the delivery person. DoorDash, the nation's biggest on-demand food delivery app, is dropping a widely criticized tipping policy that really meant that customers' tips were going to DoorDash rather than the worker who delivered their meal. There was a lot of outrage over the past few days after customers really started to realize that their tips weren't always going to their delivery drivers. The reversal from DoorDash comes after a broader debate about jobs and fair pay in this thing we call the gig economy, things like Uber and Lyft. Workers have a lot more flexibility working this way, but there's less stability and there's fewer benefits. And while this announcement is good news for customers who think that their tips are going to increase the workers' earnings, some of these implications are far less clear for these gig workers themselves. There has been a policy change, but who knows what the ultimate policy will be. And because delivery workers for these apps are legally considered independent contractors, they're not employees, they set their own hours, they can accept jobs or reject jobs when they want to. They just don't have the ability to negotiate rates. So what was DoorDash's previous model that just got changed? For more on that, we spoke to Kia Kokolacheva. She's a technology reporter for Axios about how it worked. And then after that, we'll tell you what the CEO of DoorDash has said about the changes coming to this pay model once again. DoorDash kicks in at least a dollar for each delivery. And then um, based on the particular delivery, it guarantees them a certain amount. However, it also includes the customer tip at the end of that delivery when it's calculating 
how much money to give them to reach that guaranteed minimum amount. If the customer tipped a lot and they make way above that amount, then that's great for the delivery person. If they didn't tip or didn't tip a lot, then DoorDash comes in and fills up the rest and then they just make that minimum. But it's actually really, really similar to the way that waiters and some other professions in certain states in the U.S. get their pay where there's a minimum wage, but then the restaurants only pay them a smaller base pay because they're expected to get the rest from tips. I love these food delivery apps. They're so convenient. I mean, sometimes you're lazy at home and you don't want to get up off the couch and you just want something brought to you. But I think a lot of people are under the assumption that delivery drivers are getting paid by the company and then the tips are extra. A lot of this started up because Andy Newman from the New York Times published a story about his grueling life as a delivery app courier. And specifically, when he talked about DoorDash, he explained it just the way you did, but he, he said, the woman that was tipping me tipped me $3 because she thought that's what she was giving me. She she didn't know that she was saving DoorDash $3, not tipping me. And, and that's really the, the assumption that I think a lot of people have. You're right. Like a lot of folks know the concept of a tip as this additional money that you're giving to your waiter or, you know, someone at a hotel or anyone else um, that's in addition of the wages that they're making at their job. And a lot of folks, especially when they're ordering food, right, they see all the fees that they're being charged in their head. They're thinking, great, this is paying for the delivery costs. And then when they want to come and give a tip in their mind, this is additional money. Right. And they're not really clear on what the actual math is to the delivery person. Tell us some of the numbers that DoorDash has shared because they say that 15% of orders receive no tips. So um, DoorDash says that 15% of their orders get no tips. And so in their defense, their model will help those 15% of orders where the the tip does nothing. And then they also say that in 55% of orders, DoorDash contributes more towards that individualized guaranteed minimum than the customer tip. And then they also say that the average hourly earning for a dasher, which is what they call their delivery people, is $17.50 per hour. But the one thing we don't know is actually what portion of orders do the delivery people make more than the guaranteed minimum, which I think would tell us a lot about tipping um, culture and tipping trends for food delivery. Kia Kokolicheva, technology reporter at Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So on Tuesday night, after all the uproar, Tony Zhu, he's the CEO of DoorDash, took to Twitter to detail how things will be changing. He said, after a year of research and conversations with thousands of Dashers, we built a pay model to prioritize transparency, consistency of earnings, and ensure that all customers get their food as fast as possible. But it's clear from the recent feedback that we didn't strike the right balance. We thought we were doing the right thing by making Dashers whole when a customer left no tip. What we missed was that some customers who did tip would feel their tip did not matter. This goes back to some of the numbers that DoorDash released saying how, you know, people aren't tipping or giving enough of a tip. Tony Zhu continued and said, going forward, we're changing our model. The new model will ensure that Dasher's earnings will increase by the exact amount a customer tips on every order. We'll have specifics in the coming days. So while there's no definitive answer yet on the policy change, it does seem they are making efforts to make sure whatever you do tip will go into the pockets of the driver.
That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. Daily Dive.